Good morning. Something about the, like we're on the cusp of the time change. I just feel like we need a little bit of life here. Um, so my name is Jesse. I'm a pastor here at Double Grace. Um, and we are currently in a series on First Peter. On First Peter, we're looking at what it means to be an exile people. That's one of the dominant metaphors that Peter uses in his letter. He says, you are exiles. And so what does that mean for us as the church? Now, where we are in First Peter is where we've, we've had these sections on what the gospel is in chapter 1. Like what Peter wants us to know, what is the gospel? And we're about to jump into a lot of ethical discussions. We're going to go into next week some exile ethics. What does it mean for our relationship with the state? Politics. It's going to get real fun next week as we think about politics. But where we are right right here today, before Peter begins to, to give some commands, he's going to remind the church of who their identity is. That they are the church of Christ. And what does that mean for us? Now the church has kind of been in the news as a place where people are leaving. There's a book this year uh, called called The Great De-Churching. The Great De-Churching. And what it's revealed, they did a whole lot of uh, statistics. Two pastors put this together and they worked with sociologists. And what it revealed is that over the last 25 years, 40 million Americans have stopped going to church. 40 million. They say this is the greatest religious shift in American history. More people have left the church than, than joined in the, the Great Awakenings, the revivals. And so what do we do about that? What do we do with the fact that people are leaving the church? And what's interesting is in this study, it's not that these people necessarily don't believe, that many of them still say they believe in Jesus. Some of them are very orthodox. Yet they, they, they say, I love Jesus, but not the church. Not the church. So what do we do with this? What is the church? And maybe you're asking that same question, like, why are you here? Why do you wrestle every morning with your kids? You're being dressed, you barely make it. Like, what are we doing here? Why does this matter? Those are some of the questions that we're going to get into in First Peter. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to, to turn to First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 4. You can also look on in your bulletin. This is the word of God. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you... But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for your church. We pray, O oh Lord, that your church would receive it. Lord, we pray for your spirit to be here and live in our hearts. For those that are tired or weary, we ask that you would give them life. Father, and may we most of all see Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I have three questions I'm gonna, that are going to structure this. What is the church? What does the church do? And does the church matter? Okay? What is the church? What does the church do? And why does the church matter? So first, what is the church? The first answer to that, Peter says, is that the church is God's house. God's house where God dwells. Look at verse 5. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. The church is a house. And the spiritual, if we could just capitalize that, it would be better, right? This is the house where God's spirit dwells, where he lives. And the, the metaphor here is, is of a building project. Peter is saying, each one of you are these living stones, and you're being put together to be a house for the Lord. Now, from the Bible's first pages, God is a builder. Like, you open Genesis, and God is building a creation, isn't he? And then he builds a a man and a woman, and he commissions them to be builders, to build a dwelling place for him. Portions of the Bible, if you ever try to read the, the, the Bible from start to finish, you probably get bogged down in like Exodus and Leviticus, and you feel like you need a degree in Hebrew architecture, because God has all these specifications. God is a builder. He cares. Not only is he a builder, he's an interior designer, a general contractor. He's telling Israel what they need to do to put together his house. He cares about the curtains, what kind of material, what kind of color. He oversees the construction of the tabernacle. And then later on, when Solomon is king, it's the temple. This is the great building project. You see, God is a builder. And the house, his house, revealed who he was. Who he was. So in order to know God, you have to know his house. I think that's very true in general. Right? In order to know someone, to really know them, you gotta go to their house. You gotta go to their house. Uh, my wife Jessica and I became friends in Philly at graduate school. And I thought I knew Jessica. I thought I knew her really well. And I remember, uh, when I visited her in SoCal, where she's from in Diamond Bar, in her family home. And all of a sudden I began to learn that I only knew Philly Jessica. Right? There's this whole, you guys know this, there's this whole, like, rich, vibrant SoCal, like, culture, right? And it wasn't until I was eating with her family, going to all the restaurants. There may be a little bit of gluttony in SoCal. Um, like, that's where I got to know her, to hear the, the sights and sounds. I didn't know her until I visited her house. And friends, you cannot know God until you know God's house, which is the church. To know God is to know his house. God cares about design and detail, but he's most interested not in building a a physical construction, but building a people. Building a people. Biblical scholar Meredith Klein says there's actually two kinds of building projects 
in, in Exodus. There's the physical tabernacle, comprised of wood and curtains of gold. But then there's the building of the people. That God is building them up. He gives them a law, the Ten Commandments, to shape them. He's building the kind of people that he can dwell in. And friends, he's far more interested in building the people than he is the tabernacle. The tabernacle is symbolic of the people. That's who he's concerned about. The people were where God was to dwell. And that's why Peter explains the spiritual house of the church in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Skip down. It's all this language of people. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, if you look there, race, nation, and people are roughly synonymous in the Greek. And they're, they're, they're synonymous for, for people. He's trying to say God abides and lives and dwells in his people. So God's spiritual house is a people. Now, I know that can sound cliche. You're probably saying, yeah, 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 I know that. The church is where God dwells, in his people, sure. But let me press into that in two, two angles, okay? First, it is epic in the Old Testament when God moves into a house. You know, when, when God indwells something in the Old Testament, like, it is epic. So in the temple, after Solomon finishes the construction, the Spirit of God comes down in a cloud and fills the Holy of Holies, and, and no one can go near it. No one can go near it. It's dangerous. It's lethal. That presence dwells in the church, in you. That's what we believe. We believe the, the, the glory of God, the presence of God that filled the temple is now in his people. There's this episode in, in Acts. Um, well, oh, first, the dwelling now is, is God's spirit, right? God's spirit dwells in us. And there's this episode in Acts where Ananias and Sapphira lie to the church and they drop dead on the spot because of the conviction of the power of the spirit. Like, that is power. Now, we can write that off and say, well, that's New Testament weird stuff, right? No, that is the same spirit then as today. The spirit has power. When we walk into this room to do church, to be the church, there is a power lurking because it is the power of God abiding in his people. Second angle here. If God dwells in his people, then if we need God, there are... We actually need each other, right? Listen, if you're a Christian, God is always with you, yes, privately, personally, yes. But there is a special presence of God that only comes when we are with other believers. We are with his church. That's why Jesus says, wherever there are two or three of you are gathered, that's where I am. You cannot do this Christian life in a kind of John Wayne independent, I'm off on my own. That's not Christianity. That's some kind of privatized, spiritualized heresy. In order to know God, you have to be a part of his church. Now, now Peter gives us his, these uh, these different titles. And each one of these, we, we read, a chosen race, royal priesthood. Each one of them actually have a prominence in the Old Testament. Um, we, we, we often think about, like, the apostles writing the New Testament. Like, they're just kind of making stuff up. Right? Like, they're spiritual geniuses. And like, who is the church? They're a holy nation. 
No, no, royal. No, he's actually going. Every one of these has an Old Testament background, and for a lot of them, he goes to Exodus chapter 19, which is right, right before where God brokers a covenant with Moses and the people. And listen to what God says to His people right before the Ten Commandments. He says, "You shall be my treasured possession." Among all the peoples, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is coming from, this is coming from the Old Testament. And Peter says that is now who the church is. We are that covenant people. We are now a holy nation. Peter is getting his ecclesiology, that is, his doctrine of the church, from the scripture, as we should as well. Then he says, but you are a chosen race. Now that English gloss, race, comes from the Greek genos, as in genotype. Okay, it means a, a, a family of origin, a, a heredity. This is not race like our kind of uh, racialized politics or anything like that. This is race like human race. And what Peter is saying is that the church actually constitutes a new people, a new race. Why? Because they are a new creation. That God is forming a new humanity in Jesus Christ. We are no longer of Adam. We are of Jesus. A chosen race. It's as if our DNA has been altered. He says, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Nation. That, in the Greek, comes from the word ethnos. Which you probably hear, ethnicity. Ethnicity. The church has what biblical theologian Edmund Clowney calls a spiritual ethnicity. Isn't that great? A spiritual ethnicity. The church is an ethnic identity, right? And, and it is such in a way that like people that are within the church actually have more in common with people that are different from them and other nations who follow Jesus in their own natural ethnicity. The church is this ethnic identity that incorporates every ethnic identity. In fact, the Bible ends with this description of a multitude of of every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This ethnicity, this ethnicity, that is who the church is. We are a spiritual ethnicity. And in all the conversations that have about race over the last couple of years. The spiritual ethnicity of the church has been largely ignored. The church is not merely multicultural and multi-ethnic, which it is. The church is a culture. The church is an ethnicity. In, in other words, what I'm saying is, like, the church is a culture. We were a culture of loving initiative, embodied by the Spirit. We're a culture of self-sacrifice, of of repentance, of humility. That's what it means to be the culture of the church, to be the, the race of the church. And friends, that is far more important to us, should be far more important to us, than any kind of other markings that we prefer. We are a holy ethnos, a holy nation. We'll talk more next week about the political implications of the church's identity. I'm going to tell you how to vote. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Um, I'll tell you how to vote, like what attitude, um, or if you should, but we're going to talk about that next week. But, but, but he's saying you're a nation. 
a holy nation. So, so actually, like, the church is a politic in and of itself. We are a kingdom. We're a kingdom, a royal priesthood. And we are ruled. You can love democracy. That's great. But every Christian at heart is a, is a monarchist, right? We only listen and obey Jesus Christ ultimately. That's next week. I'm getting into that. But before we move to what the church does, so we've talked a lot about what, who the church is. There's one more marker we need to talk about. The church believes. The church believes. There's a stunning contrast in verses 6 and 7. Right? In verse 6, he talks about Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. And then in verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A stone of stumbling and rock offense. In other words, Peter says, there is this cornerstone, and there's two ways you could, you can deal with this. You can build your life in faith on this cornerstone, or you can reject it. For the one, there's salvation. For the other, there's stumbling into shame. So the church is, is, is that that people that decide to believe in Jesus. That's what the church is. We are a community of faith. That's why our markers, right, the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, they begin with, I believe. We are those who believe in Jesus Christ to build our lives on him. So just, I just want to back up here. Do you see the exalted status of the church? Do you see how Peter cannot... He, he cannot give it even a, a, a more exalted status. Holy, chosen, royal. Friends, that is who you are. That is who IGC is. If we are the church of Christ, this is who we are. And we didn't deserve any of that. All this, what has the church done in any of this? only thing the church has done described to any of this is believe. Every other part of this is God speaking His grace, calling, right? You were called out of darkness into His marvelous light. This is, our status as a church is by grace alone. We do not deserve this. For us to say that we are a holy nation is not to say that we are perfect or righteous. It is to say that Jesus has proclaimed that we are holy, and therefore we will become holy. Now, that's not to say there's not work for us to do. The work comes after we are ascribed this status. We do have a ministry. We do have a mission. So let's get to that next. Our second question. What does the church do? What does the church do? Um, you can actually, if, if you're an underliner, underline verse 5. Because verse 5 actually has both the status and the the action. He says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. That's our status, to be a holy priesthood. Status, to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's our ministry, is to sacrifice. And the way that Peter puts this, actually, is in priestly languages. We didn't talk about what it means to be a priesthood, but by he bookends in verse 5, you're a holy priesthood. In verse 9, you're a royal priesthood. What Peter is saying is, what does the church do? It acts as a priest. It is priestly. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, we sacrifice. Whoa, 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 whoa. 
We're Christians. There's no altar up here, right? There's no like. What does that mean that we sacrifice? Isn't isn't Christ's sacrifice on the cross sufficient for us? Isn't it sufficient? Uh, the book of Hebrews is helpful here because if there's any book in the Bible that talks about the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, it's Hebrews. And yet, after this prolonged argument that Christ has fully sacrificed himself, that we are given forgiveness of sins, listen to how Hebrews ends. This is Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. A sacrifice of praise. A sacrifice of praise and worship. This aligns with what, what, what Peter seems to be saying about sacrifice in verse 9, right? He says, you are, you're a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. There's, there's a parallel. We were called to offer spiritual sacrifices, which is to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. In other words, the mission of the church is worship. It is worship. That's why we exist as a church, is to worship, to sacrifice praise. Simon Chan is a Singaporean Chinese theologian, and he sums up this dimension of the church. Listen to what he says. He says, worship could be said to be the defining characteristic of the church. In this world, the church may be a voice of conscience in the community, a champion of the poor and oppressed, a preserver of traditional values, and so on. But these functions are not what make it the church, for they could as well be taken up by other religious and secular bodies. The church's defining characteristic is its worshipful response to the call of God to be his people. It says, what makes us different as the church is worship. We are called by God to worship. Worship is what the church does. And friends, when we gather every Sunday, this is us being the church. This is our principal mission and work as the church, is to come together to hear God's word and to sing his praise and to fellowship with him in a meal. So, how might we think about that? Like, when you walk in here to Craigside Middle School, into this cafeteria, <laughs> like, this, this is actually, this is worship. What we are doing is what we were made to do. And I know that's hard. It's so easy. It's so easy to see this with our natural eyes and to see, like, the burners over there and like to, to hear the, the, the cleansing air thing and I get all sorts of, um, flashbacks to when I was eight years old. <laughs> but I want you to hear what happens in worship. What happens in worship when you are called into worship? The way that Hebrews talks about this, it says like heaven breaks open. And comes down into earth. Like when we begin to worship Jesus Christ, even at Creekside Cafeteria, heaven spills into here. And all of a sudden, we are not just here going through the motions. We're actually hearing the voice of God to us. That spirit of power is with us. The way Hebrews says, in fact, there's angels upon angels gathered in this, this festal assembly. That's what worship is. 
And if we had a view of that, there are implications for that. Like, how can you just stroll in here a couple minutes late? Like, if there is a, if you had a meeting with the president, I'm pretty sure you'd be on time, right? There is there are implications for how we enter into worship that we've been called by God, right? And called by God. This is what we're doing. And it takes eyes of faith to see this. Friends, I know, I know that the Bay, Bay Area is casual. And, and we're casual as a church. I don't want to change that. But you can never be casual in worship. What we are doing in worship is not casual. It is life and breath, friends. So the mission, the purpose, the, the action of the church is to worship. Now, this proclamation, right, we are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's not just about worship, right? Our proclamation needs to spill out past these four walls. Our proclamation is to our neighbors and to our unbelieving friends and family. And, And I know that as I say that, we get a little nervous, right? Evangelism is a scary, awkward thing, especially when you're in the Bay Area. Like, how do we do that? But I think it's better to reframe evangelism as worship. Because evangelism feels like we need to have some control over the outcome. Like, if we could just say the right things or, like, manipulate, like... And, and no, what, what I think is a better way to, to think about this is that we, as God's people, are called to proclaim His excellencies in all of life. In all of life, we're called to worship Him. And so we're called to be authentic with our friends and our family about our hope, about the goodness and glory of God. That's what it is. We are merely to authentically worship our Lord, to declare His true excellencies as they've been manifest in the midst of our lives. And our friends and coworkers and family will will pick up on that. We'll get to that later on in Peter. Now, you might be thinking, like, what if I don't want to worship? Like, like you gave me a really beautiful picture about what worship could be like. I'm just not feeling it. Like, what do I do then? Well, we, we actually overlooked the first duty of a priest. It was back there in the, at the beginning of the passage of verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. It says, as you come to him. As you come to him. You see, the first duty of a priest is to go to, is to go to God, to approach God. And as we approach God, that's what the priests did in, in, in the Old Testament. As, as, as they approach the Lord, they would be transformed. When you, when you come into the presence of God, first of all, you confess your sins pretty quick. But then you also worship. And so this is the first duty of us as a church, is to come to Jesus over and over again. In fact, it's present progressive as you come to Him. as Meaning, as you keep keep on coming to Him. This is what our call is. To keep on coming to Him. Uh, uh, a morning this this uh, this week, I woke up, and it was just, a, I, I had a little bit of a, a little bit of a cough, a little bit of a head thing, and like, I just feel like nothing, I told Jessica, nothing is going how I want. Every single thing is hard. And I thought, I could like just kind of, uh, vent to her for maybe two hours. And instead I went into my, into my, um, office and I, I read the Bible. 
And I started with the Psalms, as I usually do. And the Psalms said, sing to the Lord. And I've been more and more convicted that I don't do what the Scripture says. Like, I just kind of mentally, like, ah, oh, sing, yeah, whatever. But this I, all right, I'm going to start singing. And in the midst of that singing, friends, as I came to Him, my heart began to change. And all of a sudden I realized, like, everything that's hard is really about me and my own comfort. It's because I think that I carry this church or my family on, on, no. All of a sudden I began to see my proper place and I began to worship. All because I came to Him. This is your first duty as a Christian. Some of you are working so hard for, for, for the church, serving us so good. But, but your first calling is to come to Him. Alright. So that's who the church is. We are, we're the dwelling place of God. What we do is worship. Now, why does the church matter? Let's first, let's first approach this question from the opposite side. Like, why doesn't the church matter? Okay. Now, there's a lot of things we could, we could talk about. Like, why doesn't the church matter? But I, I'm, I'm going to blame Southern California this morning. I'm, I know I'm in NorCal, so this is it. Kind of, I'm playing to the crowd. Um, it's, it's SoCal's fault. Um, but seriously, uh, so the the uh, the American evangelicalism that's kind of taken over most of the country can be traced back to SoCal. Um, Fuller Seminary in Pasadena is probably the most influential seminary on the West Coast and arguably the country. And listen, to historian George Marsden goes back and looks at the origins of Fuller Seminary. And look, listen to how he describes the view of the church at Fuller. He calls it the Fuller Low Church Tradition, in which the church was the simple sum of individual believers. The church was, above all else, an aggregate of saved individuals gathered together to evangelize others. In other words, what, what their view of the church was, was biblically deficient. The church was really just this kind of gathering of people, and we're all kind of doing our individual... Like, they had no vision of what the... Of a holy people, of a nation, together. It was, it was this individualist heresy. And you can sense this view of the church and all the weird things that came out of SoCal with the church. Like there was a drive-in church, uh, back in the 50s in Orange County, modeled after a drive-in movie theater, right? The mega church is built on the kind of entertainment, entertainment mentality, right? Worship is not about worshiping the Lord. It's not even about edifying the saints. It's about how can we evangelize the lost. That's a good thing. That's not what the church, that's not what worship is about. Every one of Peter's titles for the church is corporate. And friends, I know this goes against like, like our inclinations. Our questions, when we think about like, why does the church matter? We over and over again think like, what does it do for me? What's my experience of the church? Right? It's a subjective morass. I don't like this about my church, or I want a church that's A, B, and C, and D. Friends, that's, do you hear the individualism in that? Do you, do you hear the consumerism? Church is funda- fundamentally about me and my needs. What, what Scripture says is, no, the church is fundamentally about God. It's fundamentally about God. And when you submit yourself to that, you become a part of the church. You actually discover life. Because if, if life is about you and your comfort, it's gonna, you're gonna suffer a lot. No one else is gonna live by that. <laughs> the church is about, is about us. And we cannot do the Christian faith 
apart from the church. It says, you're being built up as a spiritual house. Each living stone upon the others. To be connected to Christ, the, the foundation means that you have to be connected to the other stones. The other stones. Now some people spiritualize or abstract the church. I belong to the spiritual church. The church of my bed. <laughs> but nowhere does the New Testament allow for that spiritualization. Right? Independent from the embodied institutional church. The letters of Paul and Peter say like, in order to be a part of the church means you have to love these concrete people. Concrete people. Why does the church matter? Because it's real. Here's another way to put it. There's an ancient Christian maxim dating back to the third century that says this. There's no salvation outside the church. There's no salvation outside. I mean, you cannot be saved without the church. You need it. You need it. Now, the church does not save you, but the church is necessary to be saved. Because salvation is found in the church. And it's in the church that we are sanctified, made holy, as we love each other and walk with each other. In fact, our lessons for confession, it says there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Listen, so many people reject the church. They say, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. And they don't realize that that is in itself a rejection of Jesus. That was the great truth that Paul learned on the road to Damascus. Remember Paul in his pre-Christian life persecuted the church? And what does Jesus say? What does the Lord say to him on the road to Damascus? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He's saying, why are you persecuting me? In other words, Saul persecuting the church was persecuting Jesus. Because that is how fundamental the union is between Jesus and his church. If you sin against the church, you sin against Christ. That is how the church is. We are the body of Christ. It is symbolic, but it is nevertheless real. Friends, there are lots of reasons to get mad at the church. Like, lots. Lots of reasons. She is unfaithful. We are unfaithful. Right? There's the Church 2 movement after the Me Too. There's all sorts of scandals and celebrity pastors. Like, there are good reasons, right reasons, just reasons. The church is not perfect. But friends, why should we why should we love the church? Fundamentally because Jesus loves the church. Do you see how so many people are rejecting the church and yet do you see that Jesus endured rejection for the church? Look back at verse four. As you come to him a living stone rejected by men. This is Jesus Christ who loved his people, who had rejected him over and over and over again. That's what this language of cornerstone, we didn't even get to in verses 6 and 7. It's all about the rejection of God. And yet Jesus endured that rejection. Why? Because so that his people could be accepted by God. Jesus was rejected so that you could be accepted, his church. And he did it for not just you individually. He did it for the church. For the church. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where um, one of your friends starts dating someone or gets married and you don't really like who they got married or started dating. Right? And it kind of like weirds out your friendship for a little while. Um, 
it is completely possible to lose that friendship, right? It's completely possible to lose that friendship unless you learn to love their spouse. And friends, it is just the same with Jesus. That if you love Jesus, you have to love his bride. Listen to the way he talks about his bride. He says, Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior, that he might sanctify her, giving him himself up for her, having cleansed her with the, by the washing of water, with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Do you see how much God, how much Christ loves his bride, the church? And friends, if you are in Jesus, that is you. You are the church. It's not good for us to, to say, well, I don't like this relation with the church. No, you are the, you are the church. And this is what Jesus has done for you. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, we confess to you that we are not We are not without spot or wrinkle. But Lord, we thank you that you are washing us as a people. We do pray for those who are not connected to a church that you would give them faithfulness and commitment. Father, we pray that your great love for the church would be in our hearts. It would be our great confidence, Lord, that you love us. In Christ's name, amen.